Where, where does a courage that honors God come from? Is it innate? Are you born with courage? Is courage a learned behavior? Is courage something that you can, you can just kind of muster up if you try hard enough? Is courage self-confidence? Where does a courage that honors God come from? And what we're gonna see in a story uh, this morning is that courage that honors God comes from believing that God is faithful to keep his promises. We're in the middle of a series called The Greatest Hits, and these are the most popular Bible stories, stories that you could find in any kid's storybook Bible, stories that maybe you heard growing up when you were a kid. The Greatest Hits. You know, when you, when you go see a band in concert or like a musical artist, and you go see them, and they're like your favorite you want them to play the greatest hits. And usually there's that one song that they've just got to play. Uh, and the band always, always comes out and says, you know, who wants to hear some new stuff? And I'm always at the guy at the back that's booing. <laughs> Boo! Just play the song that I made me like you in the first place. Uh, well, you know, like if you go see the Beatles or something, uh, well, used to go see the Beatles. You, you would look for like, let it be, you know? Or uh, those of you, George Strait, you think you should play the Super Bowl or something? Uh, uh, okay. Uh, you're, you're waiting for like Amarillo by morning or something like that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, well, this morning we're gonna play that song. We're gonna hit that story. When we say the greatest hits of the Bible, this one is on your list. This story is so popular that it shows up in places that you wouldn't expect. It shows up in sports. It shows up in movies. It shows up as a Six Flags ride. It shows up in the courtroom. It shows up in politics. I'm talking about David and Goliath. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're gonna look at this story together very quickly, uh, and then we're gonna answer a couple of questions. We're, we're gonna answer, where does a courage that honors God come from? And then we're gonna look at the story and we're gonna answer the question, or at least gonna ask the question, who are you in this story? So 1 Samuel chapter 17, just a little bit of context for you. What's happening in the book of 1 Samuel is God has, has chosen Saul as king over Israel. He's the first king over Israel, but Saul has proven himself to be faithless, disobedient, and a bit of a coward. And so the Lord has rejected Saul as king over Israel, and he's chosen David as the next king over Israel. And what's happening in 1 Samuel is the author is showing us that David is better than Saul. And we're, he's just gonna pr kind of present all of this evidence, and this story of David and Goliath is giving us some more examples that David is better than Saul. So it's a lengthy story, and we're gonna move through it pretty quickly, but it can be divided into kind of three movements in the story, three scenes in the story. And the first one, if you're taking notes, you could just write down Goliath's challenge. That's verses one through 11, Goliath's challenge. Look with me in the text there in verse one. It says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. 
And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. It is a stalemate. The armies are on either side of the valley, and no one seems to want to enter that valley to do battle, well, except for one guy. Verse four, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, for us to know the exact height of Goliath is kind of challenging because the cubit in the ancient world kind of moved around with how big it was. And so it's hard for us to know exactly. At maximum, Goliath is nine feet, nine inches. And at minimum, Goliath is six feet, nine inches. So still a big guy. Six, nine is tall. It really is, especially in the ancient world when everybody's littler. Six, nine is still a giant, he's tall, and then we get some more description. He had bronze armor on his legs. Well, I skipped it, verse five. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That word mail, uh, you're probably thinking of a knight in England or something. That word mail is, is the Hebrew word for scales, like scales like a fish, or like a serpent, or like a dragon. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spears had weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Uh, the summary and what you need to know, basically, is that Goliath is pictured as a formidable, undefeatable foe. He has all the latest technology. He is big and bad and nasty. And the text is presenting him as a big, giant dragon or snake. And this dragon issues a challenge. Look in verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? In other words, are we gonna fight or are we gonna look at each other? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel to this day. Uh, literally, I heap shame on the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. So he issues this challenge. We'll go one-on-one, -on -one, and whoever wins, wins the day. Now, verse 11 gives us the reaction of the people, look what it says. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The people of Israel had been dismayed and greatly afraid before. These words have been used to describe them before. In Exodus chapter 14, the people of Israel found themselves in a situation. They looked to their left and they saw the Red Sea and they looked to the right and they saw the Egyptian army and the text says that they were greatly afraid. They didn't know that they were gonna be delivered, but they were and they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground and they wandered in the wilderness 
And while they were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they sent 12 spies. And those 12 spies went in to spy out the land and come back and give a report. Well, 10 of those spies, they they come to the leadership of Israel and they say, look, there's giants in the land. And, And those cities are fortified. We can't do it. And the text says in Deuteronomy chapter one that the people were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's like when the people of Israel come up against an impossible situation, their response is to be greatly afraid. And they cower in fear. But you need to know that it is not God's will for the people of God to cower in fear. They need a leader like Moses to come tell them the truth. You know, Moses, when they stood at the Red Sea in the Egyptian army, Moses Moses said, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight your battles. You only need to be quiet. And then when the spies came and said, we, we can't do this, they had a leader like Caleb and like Joshua who said, yes, we can. We can do this because the Lord, if the Lord delights for us to take the land, then we're gonna take it. We can do this. The Philistines had their leader, Goliath, The people of Israel had Moses and they had Joshua and Caleb and now who do they have? They have Saul. Saul is supposed to be their champion. Saul is supposed to be the one who's gonna take on Goliath. At the very least, Saul is supposed to be the one who should be saying, we need to trust in the Lord. But that's not his reaction. Verse 11 says that Saul and all the people cowered in fear. Who is going to deliver the people from their distress? I I wonder if you, maybe right now, you are facing a challenge in your life. You you have a a Goliath in your path. Maybe it's health-related, maybe it's job-related, maybe some other life circumstance that you stand before and your reaction is fear and dismay because you're not sure how you're gonna see the other side. It's too big for you. Well, the people of Israel They needed a leader. They needed someone to come tell them the truth about their circumstances. And out of left field, here comes David. That's the second section of our story. If you're taking notes, you could write down David's declaration, verses 12 through 37. David's declaration, verse 12, begins with, now David. It's like we're getting this battle description and then all of the sudden we interrupt what's going on to shift our attention to uh, the wilderness towards Bethlehem. Now, David, here's what you need to know. If you, if you are facing something that, that you're like, this is too difficult for me and I don't see how I'm gonna get to the other side, here's what you need to know. Sometimes you're standing there wondering, but God is orchestrating On the other side of the world, maybe God is moving events around to line up that the Lord is going to deliver you in his time or he will give you the grace that you need to stand firm in your struggle. You may not see how he's moving, you may not see how he's orchestrating, but he's doing it. You know, Isaiah, the prophet, he says that those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's those that wait on the Lord that shall mount up on wings like an eagle and soar. It's those that wait on the Lord that will walk and not grow weary. It's those that wait on the Lord that will run and not faint. It's not those with self-confidence. It's those with God-confidence. 
Those who are willing to wait on the Lord, that the Lord is up to something. Now, David, let's look at the rest of this section. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went up to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. These verses give us some background on David. We see, uh, we could do a little biblical study and we would, we would uh, maybe suggest that David is probably younger than 20 years old. Um, maybe not a little boy, but he, he's not an experienced man just yet. But what these verses are showing us is that David, even though he's young, stands out over the king of Israel, Saul. Because there we see there in verse 15, it says that David took care of his responsibilities at home. He took care of his father's sheep. Even if it meant that he went back and forth, maybe for 40 days, he was willing to take care of his father's sheep and he was a good shepherd. This is different from King Saul. Do you remember how we discovered King Saul in 1 Samuel? When we first meet Saul, he, is, uh, he has lost his father's donkeys. He's looking for them. He never finds them. David is presented as a better shepherd than Saul. Well, David gets, gets a mission from his dad. Look in verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So just like Joseph is sent to check on his brothers in the book of Genesis, David is sent to check on his brothers here in this text. He brings them some food and some things to take care of them. Apparently, uh, you were in charge of taking care of your family members that were at battle, and then he's supposed to bring something back, probably to prove that the brothers are still alive. And what David's going to do is he's going to obey his father. Look in verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David arose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. There he is again being a good shepherd. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Uh, once again, David is being presented as better than Saul. Uh, when we first meet Saul, he is about to be uh, called out and anointed as king over Israel. And they cast lots to narrow it down from the clan all the way down to, to Saul himself. And when they call Saul's name, this is the next king of Israel, they can't find him. Saul is hiding in the baggage. Here, David shows up to the battle and almost chunks his stuff at the keeper of the baggage. He doesn't hide. He runs to the front lines to greet his brothers. 
Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. The only thing that's different is the next sentence. And David heard him. He said the same thing over and over and over, but this time was different. It's because David heard it. And so what's gonna happen is there's gonna be this, this buzz around the camp. People are gonna start talking about what's going on and what are we gonna do about this Philistine. So verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, tax free. That might be the best part. But David starts to hear this buzz that's going around camp in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That sounds like David's greedy. It sounds like he's, he's looking to, to get some stuff, but, but look at his motivation. It says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's not so much concerned about the stuff, though he is interested. He's more concerned about the reputation of God and his people. In verse 27, the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, David's brothers hear that this little guy's asking all these questions, um, and, and they're gonna get upset. And you remember Joseph, when Joseph went to check on his brothers, they spoke harshly to him, harshly to him, and that's exactly what's gonna happen here. Look in verse 28. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He's undeterred. So verse 30, he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. He's gathering uh, more information. He's clarifying. There's this buzz that's going around the camp, and, it's, and, and it's, it's picking up steam. And the reason it's picking up steam is because nobody's really asking that question. So if I were to go down and fight this giant, what's going to happen? Nobody's asking that question. Everybody's retreating. But now this guy shows up, this, this young man, he shows up and he starts asking questions and this buzz picks up so much that the king of Israel hears it. Look in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. That means David says, I'll do it. There's not some other servant somewhere. He says, I'll do it. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Remember, uh, probably 20 years, younger than 20 years old. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Well, David's, once again, undeterred. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. 
And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He says, I've killed lions, not a lion. I've killed lions. And I've killed bears. And now in front of us, this giant dragon snake, I'll kill that one too. Now that sounds like bravado, doesn't it? A lot of self-confidence. That's not David. Because look what he says next. Verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What he says is not, I'm good enough to take care of this. What he says is, I've seen the Lord's faithfulness in the past and I know that he'll be faithful to keep his promises to me in the present. I'm, I'm not afraid because I know that my God is faithful and he'll take care of me. But it's the Lord who does it. And so Saul responds there at the end. He says, go and the Lord be with you. That's, uh, that's Old Testament for good luck, bud. <laughs> so now what Saul's gonna do is he's gonna try to help. And Saul's gonna try to prepare him for the battle. But that takes us to our third section, verses 38 through 54. We can title it Goliath's Defeat. I'm sorry to spoil the ending. I know you weren't sure what was gonna take place. You were on pins and needles. So Saul is gonna prepare David for the battle. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. It's that word scales again. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. So David put them off. Saul tries to give David his armor. There's no indication here that it's too big. Um, you know, that's sometimes the image in our, in our minds is that David's a little boy and Saul's a grown man and the armor's too big. There's no indication here that that's the case. It's more that David's not used to that. He's never worn armor before. He's never really fought in that way before. And notice that Saul's armor is a whole lot like Goliath's armor. But, but Dave, David's not gonna... Go about it that way. He's gonna choose a different direction in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The five smooth stones, the kinds of rocks that they used to sling with a sling were probably the size of a tennis ball. So in your mind, it was probably like this little rock that he used a slingshot and hit the giant in the head. It was like a, one in a million shot and killed him. That's not really the story probably. It's probably this, this pretty good sized rock that gets slung and, and knocks Goliath out. Uh, but the idea is that David's like, I'm gonna do things the way that I'm used to. That might work for you, but this is what's gonna work for me. And so now we move to the battle. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. That's two on one, by the way. Uh, and then what happens in these verses is a little bit of trash talk. Like Goliath's got some things to say to David and David's gonna give it right back to him and they're, they're gonna kind of jaw at each other for a minute. 
And so when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? He's referring to David's shepherd's staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now that doesn't mean that the Philistine used bad language. That's not what that's referring to. That's actually an important statement there. Uh, What Goliath is doing is he's calling on his God, Dagon, to come down and and do bad things to David on Goliath's behalf. That's what he's saying. But that's really important for us because if we've read and understand and are very familiar with the story of the Bible, we would know that in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, but those who curse you, I will curse. And now we have the offspring of Abraham. And this offspring of Abraham has been cursed by this foreigner. And in our minds, we should think, "Uh uh-oh, he shouldn't have done that. He cursed him by his gods. And listen to what he says. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Try that one next time you're playing basketball against somebody. Try that. That'd be a good one to try. And then David said to the Philistine, now it's his turn. You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Notice what David does not say. You come to me with javelin and spear and sword, but I come to you with, I've got this shepherd's staff and some rocks, some good-sized rocks and, and a sling. It's not what he says. He says, you come to me with your weapons of war, but I come to you hiding behind the God of Israel. He is for us, and he is against you. Once again, this is not self-confidence. This is God-confidence. He says in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. He has no sword So he has a plan to get a sword. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know. That's the reason. Not so that everyone will think David is great. Not so that he can ascend the throne and take it from Saul. But so that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And so David is filled with self, not self-confidence, but God-confidence. And he knows that the Lord will deliver. And so now the battle, verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand... In, put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now that's a story. Uh, What's interesting 
is this thing, this, these events have already happened in Samuel. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was like where God's presence was centralized, localized. They'd stolen the Ark of the Covenant from the people of Israel and they put it in their own temple right next to their god Dagon, this statue. And they went to bed and when they woke up in the morning, Dagon, this god, had fallen on his face next to the Ark. So they went in there and their god needed help up. So they helped him up and stood him up right next to the Ark of the Covenant again. And they went to sleep. And they woke up the next day, and you know what happened? It fell down again, and its head fell off. David has done the same thing. This Philistine God-like figure, this serpent, stood in front of the people of Israel, and now he has fallen face down, and now he's missing his head. Now, you remember the deal. It was one-on-one, and that's who wins the day. So the Philistines should be servants of Israel. They don't keep their end of the bargain. Look what happens When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I would have done the same, by the way. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. It was a rout. They take off running and they didn't stand a chance against the pursuing army of Israel. And once that deed was done, the army of Israel came back and took what they wanted from the Philistine camp. But what did David do? Verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. So he takes Goliath's armor and keeps it for himself, but then he takes the head of the Philistine. Now, uh, if he's a 6'9 guy, that's a big head. If you're 6'9 in here, I'm sorry, you got a big head. If you're 9'9", nine, nine, that's a bigger head. And I don't know how you carry a giant head like under your arm like a basketball or by the hair. I don't know how you do that, but it says that David took it, maybe a basket. I don't know. He took it to Jerusalem. Now, here's why that's interesting. At this point in Israel's history, Jerusalem does not belong to Israel. Jerusalem belongs to one of their chief enemies, the Jebusites. David takes the head of one giant. He takes it to his enemy's city. He drops it off at the gate, and he says, you're next. And the reason why is because David had seen the faithfulness of God throughout the history of the people of Israel. He knew the stories in the scriptures. He knew it, and he'd seen the faithfulness of God in his own life in the past with the lions and the bears, and then he saw God's faithfulness in the present with this giant serpent Goliath thing, And he knew that in the future, he's going to be faithful to me again. And that's exactly what happens later on. David is finally made king over Israel. And you know what one of the first things he does is? He shows up at Jerusalem and he takes it. David had a courage that honored God. Because David knew that God was faithful and he believed his promises. So David here is presented as better than Saul. He's the rightful king over Israel. So that's the story of David and Goliath, and we look at it and we wonder, how, how should I relate to it? How should I apply this story in my life? Where am I in the story? Is, is that even a valid way to try to understand it? Where am I in the story? I'm gonna say yes, 
But before we get there, I wanna answer a different question. Who is David in the story? That's what I wanna do. And, and we, we could spend actually weeks talking about just from 1 Samuel 17, who David represents in this story. Da- David is, is a new and better Adam. David is, is the offspring of Abraham. David is a new Joseph. And we could work through all of those things, but I, I actually wanna spend our time thinking about it a little bit differently. David in this story, who is he? David represents someone whose courage comes from trusting in God. His courage comes from trusting in God. So who is David? David is not Saul. David is a better leader. David is a better warrior. David is a better shepherd. He is a better king. He's not Saul, but who is he? David is a new Moses. You know, Moses stood between the Egyptians and the Red Sea, and he said, stand firm, do not be afraid. David is a new Moses. David is a new Caleb and Joshua. When the spies said, we can't do this, Caleb and Joshua said, yes, we can, but not from self-confidence, but because if the Lord delights to give us the land, then he's gonna give us the land. David is a new Moses. He's a new Caleb, and David points forward to Jesus. In many ways, does David and his life point forward to Jesus? Jesus Jesus is the eternal king that sits on David's throne. Jesus is the ultimate serpent crusher. That's what David did when he cut off the head of Goliath. He He was crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus is the ultimate serpent crusher. When he returns one day, he's gonna ultimately defeat sin and death and Satan, and we will see that he is the new and better David. But there's another way that David points forward to Jesus. Jesus displayed a God-honoring courage in his life, and that God-honoring courage came from the same place that David's did. You know, when Jesus was faced with the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And and the nature of his prayer was something like this, Father, I don't want to suffer like this. But do you know what part of the prayer won the day? Not my will, but yours be done. When faced with the cross, Jesus's courageous prayer was not my will, but yours be done, Father. Father, I don't wanna suffer in the ways that I know I'm about to suffer, but if it's your will, and this is, if this is what you have planned out for me, then I will joyfully obey. That is a God-honoring courage, but where did that courage come from? It came from trusting his Father. And I'm not making that up. Peter tells us that. Peter was there when Jesus prayed that prayer. He was sleeping, so he missed the whole thing. But, but listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. About Jesus' suffering, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He was willing to suffer in horrible ways because he entrusted himself to his father. He knew that his father 
would keep his promises. He knew that his father would not let him down. He knew that his father was for him and not against him. He knew that his father was able to take this thing that looked like defeat. You know, Jesus was gonna face this giant of the cross and he was, he was going to die. David knew that he was gonna live. Jesus knew that he was gonna die. But he was willing to face that, that his father was able to take this horrible thing and to turn it into a victory when Jesus was risen from the dead. But David points forward to Jesus with this God-honoring courage. And so who are you then in the story? Uh, some people wanna ask, is that a valid question? You don't read yourself into the stories of the Bible, and I, I tend to disagree. You know, the Bible is, is for more information, it is. You read the Bible and you learn more things. You learn about who God is. You learn what God likes and what's important to God. You learn about the people of God. And we study the scriptures because we wanna know how the biblical authors communicate because they're communicating us to us things that we could never know on our own. And so we read the Bible for more information, but that's not all that we read it for. We read the Bible for more information, but we also read it for our formation, we are supposed to be formed by what we learn about God through the scriptures. Paul says that in Romans. He says the former things that have taken place, referring to the Old Testament things, the former things that have taken place have been written down for our instruction so that we could find encouragement and hope. The things that have taken place in the Old Testament were written down so that you and I would be formed by them. That our lives would be different because we know these things. And so for that reason, as I look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think you really could be anybody in this story. You could be Goliath. Goliath is a monster. Goliath is an enemy of the people of God. G Goliath mocks the people of God. G he mocks God, but he mocks the people of God. And he's presented as a dragon or a snake. Why? because he's aligning himself with the enemy. He's aligning himself with Satan. And so those who oppose God, those who mock God's people are aligned with Satan himself. Are you Goliath? Do you mock God? Do you mock God's people? Be very careful, there's a bumper sticker I've seen. If you have this on your car, I'm so sorry. I'm about to burn you. Uh, there's a bumper sticker I've seen. It says, I love Jesus, it's his people I can't stand. That sounds a whole lot like dragon talk to me. And here's the thing. If you are Goliath, you should be warned, those who oppose God will reap the whirlwind. You could be Goliath. You could also be Saul. Saul is pictured as a man who, who really, he really did have self-confidence. He really did. He wasn't realizing who he was as the king of Israel, but he did have self-confidence, he looked at his armor and he relied on his own strength and he looked at the giant and said, nope, not today. Self-preservation, I'm gonna take care of myself. He had confidence in his, in his own armor. He only trusted in what his eyes saw. He didn't trust in the Lord. Are you Saul? Are you someone who plays this game of self-preservation out of fear because you are confident in your own abilities, not understanding that the Lord's gonna keep his promises. The Lord rejects those who refuse to trust him. That's what we learn from Saul. You could also be the people of Israel. 
the people of Israel, that they were God's people. And they had, they had seen God's faithfulness in the past throughout their history. And they had known how God had been faithful to them. But now faced with their own moment to shine and to trust in the Lord, they cowered in fear. You might be facing something that is um, unmentionable right now. There was somebody who stopped me after the first service and said, I can't even tell you what I'm going through right now. But listen, I'm going to tell you when it's over. God's going to see me through. You might be going through something like that that you're like, I can't really even tell you about it right now because it's so difficult. You might be facing a giant and you are afraid and you are anxious and you don't know what to do. You are exhibiting the same kind of behavior as the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 17. Let me encourage you. God has been faithful in the past and he's never given us any reason to think that he won't be faithful now. You can trust him. You should be encouraged. If you feel like, yeah, I identify with the people of Israel, you should know that God is faithful. But are you David, though? That's how we're supposed to read this story, at least one of the ways. Are you David? David was someone who trusted in the Lord. David was somebody who was courageous, but his, his courage wasn't self-confidence, it was God-confidence. He knew that the Lord was faithful in the past and that the Lord would continue to be faithful in the present and he was gonna be faithful in the future so I can lean on God, I can be courageous, I can face anything with that kind of confidence. That's how we're supposed to read this story. I wanna be David. I wanna be David. I wanna be somebody that trusts the Lord like that. I wanna be somebody that can face anything because I know God's got me and I know he'll be faithful to me that's how we're supposed to read this. I, I, I want to be David. Lord, teach me how to be David. So I'm gonna leave you with this. In a room this size, every single person could probably say, I've got something I'm facing that's pretty tough. And yours might be more uh, difficult than someone else's. But I wanna leave you with this encouragement. Here's what we can get from 1 Samuel 17. The Lord is worth trusting. He is faithful. He has been. He will be faithful. He is able. He's able to deliver you, and he will. He will deliver you or he will give you the grace to stand firm. He is for you. He is not against you. So whatever you're facing, a courage that honors God is trusting that God will keep his promises. Mm -hmm.